Hey everyone, Ron Garen here. First, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Orbital Perspective podcast. What started out as a discussion around sheltering in place almost a year ago has turned into a discussion platform centered around making our world and our future better for everyone. Let's keep that discussion going. I also wanted to let you know that my next book, Floating in Darkness, A Journey of Evolution, launches on May 4th of this year. It's the sequel to my first book, The Orbital Perspective, and goes much deeper into solving the challenges that our world faces and how we can come together as one to create solutions. It's part autobiography, part action movie, part love story, with a message of unity that I would like to share with the world. For my loyal podcast listeners, I'm offering a 25% discount off the retail price. To get the savings, simply go to floatingindarkness.com forward slash order and enter the code PODCAST to save 25%. It's good for the next 48 hours, and it's my way of saying thanks for joining me on this incredible journey towards a better future. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Orbital Perspective Podcast, where we dolly zoom out to a perspective where upcoming megatrends become visible. Every day, it is more and more apparent that we are in the midst of the great transition. Everything is changing rapidly. The fundamentals of business, government, and society are being rewritten almost on a daily basis. We are truly living during a time where the riskiest course of action is to stay the course. The most hazardous path is to take the tried and true. We are also living during a time where it is becoming more and more apparent that the status quo is not working. At least it's not working for everyone. And until the status quo is working for everyone, we will do nothing more than slap temporary band-aids on our problems and our challenges. We are presently dealing with crisis after crisis. But these crises can serve as a wake-up call. They can be our call to action to incorporate the changes necessary to make us all more resilient and better equipped to deal with the future crises that will undoubtedly come our way. The Orbital Perspective is all about transcending the divisive walls that separate us and embracing the awe and wonder of our shared humanity. What all the guests on the Orbital Perspective podcast have in common is they are all able to see things from a slightly different perspective. And when we look at issues from different perspectives, we see things in stereoscopic vision. Multiple perspectives allow us to see the depth of a situation below the two-dimensional us-versus-them surface. The other thing all our guests have in common is that they are all proof that you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. Now, this is not an interview, and it's also not just a conversation between two friends. It's a conversation amongst all of us. If you're listening live, please post your questions and your comments so that we can bring you into the conversation. And if you're listening to the recorded conversation, still please join in with your comments and questions and be a part of this evolving community. Thank you for being here and being a part of this conversation from the Orbital Perspective. Hi, everybody. Hope this, uh, this episode finds everybody uh, safe and healthy and adjusting to this new world we find ourselves in in 2020. Welcome to the first official uh, episode of the Orbital Perspective podcast. And uh, as you heard in the opening uh, video, uh, what this is all about is, is zooming out to a higher perspective, to a higher vantage point, a vantage point where we could hopefully see all the pieces of the puzzle, who has them and what picture they paint for for our society as a whole. And we, we're not just zooming out, we're, we're dolly zooming out. And dolly zoom is a, is a term that I borrowed from cinematography where you uh, dolly a camera back or roll a camera back at the same time that you're zooming in. And the analogy is we need to do that with uh, problem solving and how we deal with the challenges and problems facing our planet. And that is that we need to zoom out to the widest perspective possible. But as we do that, we need to keep the worm's eye details uh, on the ground in focus um, so that we don't uh, reduce people to statistics and um, we, we, we treat everyone as a, as a valuable uh, and priceless part of our overarching society. And so that's the goal 
of, uh, of this, this podcast. And also, uh, this particular episode, I'm really excited. We have a, a great uh, fellow converser, um, and uh, we're going to talk all about, you know, how can we uh, harness this uh, current crisis and all the other crises that we're uh, facing uh, into, into hope and into creativity. And so my guest today is Richard St. Pierre, and uh, I'm, I'm going to do a, a quick introduction uh, of, of Richard. Richard St. Pierre is a visionary social business advocate who is on the leadership team of C2 International. C2 is the creator and producer of the most forward-thinking business events in the world, combining progressive and inspiring content with highly creative, collaborative, and immersive context. C2 convenes leaders to collaboratively explore the creative intersections of commerce, science, technology, society, and sustainability. Richard currently serves as the vice chairman of C2's board of directors and formerly served as C2's president. In those roles, Richard helped mobilize the brightest and most influential minds from a wide network of countries and industries. These efforts established a unique ecosystem of partners. Richard's philosophy is if you don't like what you see, build a different view. He believes that solving the world's problems has creativity at its epicenter. Richard was named one of the top 10 innovators of 2017 while leading C2, which was voted the most innovative event of North America four years running and the most kick-ass event in the world in 2019. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, he launched the Global Data Pledge in partnership with the UN. Richard is also a social business ambassador working with Nobel Peace Prize laureate and Grameen Bank founder, Professor Mohammed Yunus. Richard, with the support of his expansive team, uses business as a world change agent with the goal of propelling the economy and society forward. All right. Hey, Richard. How's it going? Hello. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Ron, and hello to everyone. Yeah, and, and to everybody who's tuning in, uh, we're looking at your comments. So, you know, bring, bring us uh, your questions and, and your comments. Um, so, Richard, thank you. Thank you for being here all the way from uh, Montreal. Uh, and, uh, yeah, with, this is all about how do we harness uh, hope and creativity out of the, uh, the crisis. And I know that C2 was born out of a crisis. So maybe just to get things going, um, you could tell us the, the C2 story, how C2 started and what the goals are and objectives. Uh, that's great, Ron. You got me started for the next three hours, so I'll, <laughs> I'll try to keep it short. Um, yeah, I think C2 uh, gives us uh, an, a very applicable lesson for today. Uh, there's good that could come out of crisis. It doesn't remove the bad, but if you get the um, silver lining out of crisis, maybe there's opportunities that grow from that. And so to your point is C2, um, go back at 2008, 2009, everybody world economic crisis. And Montreal was no exception to the fact that uh, as a city, it was not looking all that good. And um, of course, you can be part of government, or you can be go to, down in the street, and that's fine. But as a business person, what do you do? What's your contribution to a crisis, uh, economic at that time and COVID today? Uh, how do you contribute? Because you have to contribute. If you're just sitting and waiting for others to do things, uh, society is not going to move forward. So we got uh, a bunch of us, 14 of us uh, business people together, men and women alike. And we said, what do we do to launch or relaunch Montreal? And um, that was kind of the basis. And of course, we, we dabbled with the fact that maybe we can start the next Google, the next Facebook or whatever. But our chances are that we would not have succeeded or at least very slim. So we, we oriented ourselves very quickly by saying, if we put thousands of companies together, maybe if we establish a dialogue between those companies, some magic will happen. And that's how we actually started C2. We said, okay, let's start a business event company, um, not for the profit because it was a nonprofit organization from the start, but by with the aim of putting organizations together and also creating an environment where those businesses together would create some magic, right? And that was the initial start. And the, the fundamental um, principle from the start was the notion of dialogue. You know, if, if you're doing a monologue, you might very well agree with yourself, as you can understand. But if you are actually actively participating in dialogue, 
you're confronted with your own ideas and different point of views, different culture, different everything. So we said for that magic to happen, well, we need to put a Spanish uh, business person with a uh, Chinese business person, all that in Montreal. Um, how about we put a French with a German and, and so on? You see a bit the point. And if you put enough people together, you end up with a mix of uh, things happening, dialogues that, that are happening that you don't control, but that create magic in itself. And so, so the value behind C2 was not about creating another, another business event. And yes, we were voted the most kick-ass event, and that's fine. It was about creating, propelling the economy and society forward. So the economy, everybody understands, it's about dollars, right? So we tried to say, okay, dollars is not profit. It's if we do deals, it's better. So at C2, for example, in three days in Montreal, every year for the last 10 years almost, we've generated $700 million worth of deals in three days. And yet we're not an economic conference. That's not the purpose of it. And secondly, on the society side, well, is Montreal better? Of course, better because businesses are better. But we also created close to 2,000 jobs in three days. That's 10% of the jobs created in Quebec pre-COVID. So imagine that private organization, nonprofit, getting close to a billion dollars in uh, in deals and creating close to 2,000 jobs in parallel of everything that's happening. I think that's quite a success. And that's why we were named number one business conference in North America five years running, because we, we eat our own dog food here. We uh -huh. deliver the impact that we started with uh, in the first place. So... Crisis led to something that we had to create from scratch. And that paradigm, that creation gave now a new reference point. And we're being copied all around the world. And I'm glad for it because copy is better because if it works for us, it might very well work for others. Yeah. So, so I mean, this, this podcast was born out of crisis, right? This podcast uh, evolved from something called Conversation Sheltered in Place which was my feeble attempt at uh, trying to bring together experts to help people navigate uh, the COVID-19 crisis. And um, I think at some point, you know, we've been at this for months now, we, ne we need to start talking about what is on the other side, you know, what is gonna happen on the other side when we finally get through this, you know, the light, the, it's a very dim light, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And so, um, establishing things that are going to, to survive past and, and uh, is a really good thing. So how has C2, and C2 is commerce and creativity, right? And so how, does, how has C2 um, adapted to, to the coronavirus crisis? <laughs> um, adapted is an interesting word. I'm not sure. I, I think it was more compelling. We were yeah. forced down. So it was a hard landing. Yeah. Um, basically, uh, just as the airline industry got stalled in its track, right? Uh, at this, at, like that last spring. Well, we're, we're an event company. We did uh, 30 events all around the world uh, in the past 18 months. So the problem with that is that there's no longer events and there's no longer planes. Uh, so nobody wants to meet. So basically 90% of everything we were doing got wiped out day in, day out. So it's kind of a, okay, uh, it, it's not crisis. It's uh, Armageddon to be quite frank. And um, as uh, the C2 team and myself, uh, we've been faced with so many crises. Uh, you can look at the abyss and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a plunge or how about I try start flying, right? Um, so that's where the creativity comes in. And maybe uh, let me get, do a segue before I, I talk about the, the C2 pivot, but we are about commerce and creativity. When I first started that, the word creativity, we, we, we stumbled on because is it innovation we're talking about or creativity? And we went for creativity, knowing that some people will say creativity, oh, it's for artists. Uh, it's, for, it's for like uh, people that draw and things like that. And you, we all know that creativity stems from inventing the new. So it's not innovation at is you have to you iterate from where you are and you try to make it better, make it more efficient. Creativity is breakthrough with a new path. And it, it sounds odd, but the image I have of creativity is myself being followed by dragons. 
So you have, imagine yourself, you're running for your life, right? You're, you're like, you have a death sentence uh, facing you in the eye and you have those dragons that like scream and claws and fires and everything. And then you're stuck in a corner. Well, you know, like the last few minutes and your life, you know, goes by your eyes and you're stuck in a corner here and the dragon is still coming up. Well, that's when creativity kicks in. You have to invent a door. You have to figure out a, a window where yeah. none exists, or at least you thought that none existed, but there's always one. The point is, is that uh, not, notwithstanding how many dragons were, were around me all the time and how many corners I got stuck in, there's always a window to be built with yourself and with others. Because I've just talked about my imagery here, but when you're in an entire team, you're got that team is stuck in that corner, right? And that's where creativity happens. So in spring, uh, myself, the president, and the C2 team, we said, okay, we're, we're, we, need, we need to pivot here because we don't have a business anymore and everything is going to tank. And we have to make sure that we actually survive that transition. You know, you respond to a crisis, but before you have the response, you have to make sure that there's enough food for everyone to go around until that transition has happened. Right. So we came up with the concept of digital of all so the combination of physical and digital so we're now having a digital event right we're, this is a podcast yep. well we figured out a way to combine the fact that a few people could be live together so the interaction the humanity of things with stem and combining it with people from all around the world and we came up with the notion of digital and guess what hundred percent of our clients are saying we're on board and we're launching a series of events starting uh, actually now uh, at the beginning of October with uh, more than like 40 events that are digital in the format. I guess it's the first time you hear that word, but it's going to be uh, the first time that the world will have seen a combination of digital event with physical uh, placement. So that's our response to the crisis. Yeah, I, I really like your analogy of, you know, being stuck in the corner with the dragons coming at you uh, as a as a catalyst for creativity, which is a catalyst for change. Right. And that's kind of where we're at right now as a society. And you know, I talk about us being in the great transition right now. We've had all these crises that have come at us, you know, obviously COVID-19 and we have, you know, global warming with all of its associated crises, the wildfires and the, and the um uh, extreme weather and and you know financial crises and social crises that that are that are coming down the chute, all of those can serve to as a catalyst, as motivation, as a wake up call for us to implement the type of change that we need. And and I truly believe that we are on the on the the verge of a new human epoch, a new human human epoch where everything is going to change. And one of the things that I think is going to change is, is our economy and, and the nature of our economy and the nature of how society interacts uh, in a financial way. And you talked about you know, one of the goals being propelling the economy forward. And I, what I know of C2 and what I know of you, that's not to be taken in the context of the old human epoch, right? The old two-dimensional us versus them uh, conquest and, and competition at all costs, profit maximization at all costs, resource ex extraction uh, with no end, that type of propelling the economy forward. You know, it, if we judge the success of our economy solely on GDP or GNP, um, it should be obvious to everyone that that has an endpoint, right? You can't have unlimited growth on a planet of finite resources. It just doesn't work that way. And so, um, can you talk a little bit about what you and what C2 means when you say propelling the economy forward? Yeah, and uh, I think the world is pivoting today and whatever that means and however you translate that into your own means, but there's kind of two lessons from that pivot to, to ourselves and to the people listening here. You have to choose if you're a spectator or an actor of change, right? And by the way, the world doesn't need more spectator. The world needs more actors of change. And that's everyone. And it, in, it involves everyone. It involves every single one of the people listening to this podcast. Put to, to this podcast. You mean the ones that aren't putting comments or questions in there? Because I haven't <laughs> seen a single, a single question yet. And I see you. I see all you people that are watching. So 
Start asking some questions. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, that's it. So, but but that's my point is that you can say you can look at CNN and like turn off the TV and go to bed to say, and I'm going to listen to CNN to next day and say, okay, well, too bad, right? Or you could say, um, I don't like what I see, and I'm going to do something about it. That something doesn't need winning a Nobel Peace Prize. That's not the point. It's what you can you do in your small microcosm uh, in order to affect change, right? And for example, you, Ron, uh, you went to space. You saw how much of a planet and how beautiful it is and how if we worked hand in hand, how we can actually change it. Well, now you're translating that into a podcast. Like, like what a gap between astronaut to podcaster. But it's your way to influence change, right? And so we're, we have a calling right now. That's the crisis that we have from environmental to uh, the virus and everything. It's a calling and see it as such. So what are you going to do about it? So that's kind of the, the first thing that you should draw from actually this podcast. And if I, I can, you know, the lesson I could share with everyone Please figure out, take a piece of paper, chat with friends. What are you going to do about it? The second thing is don't fall into the Band-Aid scenario. So as human, we look at the past and try to say, okay, I'm going to fix it so it comes back as it was in the past. Well, guess what? As you, as you mentioned, if we go consuming the way we were, uh, if we go uh, driving our cars the way we were, etc., we're not going to be in, we're going to end up in the same place. Uh, I mean, I don't have to tell everyone that uh, part of this COVID pandemic is due to climate change. Some people will debate that, but who cares? Is there an influence that will hit us like really hard in 50 years and we have a lessons to be learned today? Yeah. So don't go back, reinvent. So if you're stuck in a corner, invent a new window because that's the, what the world needs right now the window that you will invent, the new path that you have. Yeah, and um, uh, thanks for everybody who's who's saying hi and, and telling us that they're joining. Uh, but join in, join in the conversation as well. Uh, we, we welcome you. Uh, you have that invitation. Um, so why don't we talk about the global data package and what you're doing with that? Because I think that's another example of creativity, uh, <laughs> the, the, the crises uh, catalyzing uh, uh, creativity. Um, well, that's an extreme, an interesting segue, Ron, because um, I was actually looking at CNN uh, this spring and at MSNBC and all others and reading like everyone about the pandemic and what was happening. And I was struck by many things, of course. But one thing I was saying, how come we cannot even account for the number of deceased or the number of people infected worldwide in a simple manner? People were debating, are people dying or not? Come on. We, it, it's, it's evident that this is happening. How come we cannot account for it? And the second thing is, how come um, Korea had good testing? And us in Canada and in the U.S. as well, we were kind of wondering, how are we going to test people? How about we take the data points of Korea and import them to us Canada, like, come on, we're a global economy here. Uh, if it works for supply chain, how come it can't work for test? Uh, I have two legs, two eyes, two arms, uh, the same as Koreans. So likely the test will work too. And it was obvious uh, for months that this um, mismatch between uh, the intent uh, and the actual result from supply chain to testing and so on that mismatch was creating havoc and costing human lives. So uh, a friend of mine from XPRIZE um, and uh, Amir Banifatimi, uh, we had linked with the UN and we said, how about we figure out a way to at least at the very root, establish data points that everybody will agree to, common data points and common data sets that people can share. Because if you have a great algorithm, uh, an AI software or whatever, like, uh, but you, you say, I don't have data to input into it. Well, you might have the best solution in the world, but if you don't have data to drive it or output it with, you end up with nothing, right? So what is our contribution to this mismatch we were seeing on CNN? We called it the Global Data Pledge. So we're launching this actually this September 30th uh, at the UN uh, National Convention. 
where we're going to ask people, countries, institution, private corporations to pledge their data. So that if in time of crisis, if we call you bank, telecom, insurers, countries from Rwanda to Canada to the US, we would call upon you to get your data set with your agreement and everything and share it with the people who can use it best. And that's as simple as that. That's the pledge that we're asking for. We're not uh, asking for money, for uh, privacy rules. And uh, of course, these need to be respected. And there's all those layers that need to be accounted for. But the number one thing is that if there's a crisis, here's the data that will help that alleviate to a certain point that crisis. And that's what we're asking for, for the pledge. And we want, want it to be a global data pledge. So we're asking every country, every corporation, with the backing of the UN, and that starts September 30th. Yeah, and I, I, the common theme that I'm hearing in all this, this, the uh, stories that you're telling about C2 is, is collaboration and cooperation. And um, this is a perfect example of what's needed to solve the big problems that we face, because the big problems that we face are, 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 are planetary in scale, right? <laughs> so, in, you know, in order for us to be able to overcome these crises, I, I truly believe that we need to become the first species uh, in the history of life on our planet to be able to figure out how to cooperate on a planetary scale. Um, you know, many, many species operate uh, or cooperate on a, on a massive scale, ants, bees, you know, fish, but they all seem to limit their cooperation to their community, however that's defined, the anthill, the, the beehive, uh, the school. And um, what we need to do, I think, is to redefine our community to encompass the entire planet and to become planetary, uh, to become a planetary community. Um, and I think uh, what you're hitting on with, with uh, the, the data challenge is just that, is that uh, our problems are not national problems. They're planetary problems, and we have to deal with them as, as a planetary community. Um, I guess, Ron, that, um, you know, like, maybe your mindset or at least your compellingness to do so changed uh, after you put yourself on top of a missile <laughs> and basically went into space and saw like from a, you know, a, that orbital view likely will have changed your, your view of the world. I, I'm sure you're the same person, but you were transformed because you saw the planet in a different way. You saw it, you could embrace it. Right. Yeah. I'm kind of curious to, to ask you, you, how does that worldview change for you from seeing it from up there? So I think there's two extreme catalysts for change um, and motivation. Uh, one, one is on wonder and uh, the on wonder of our planet, of our world, of our species, of our civilization uh, was clearly uh, apparent uh, and, and undeniable from the vantage point of space. The other thing that's a high motivator is fear. And so fear is a very destructive, very counterproductive, very limiting source of motivation. And throughout the world right now, that is, that is what we're seeing, or at least that's what's being sold to us in all our media and our political discussions and, and here on social media and everything. It's all, or it's not all, but it's a great majority of is fear-based. But what I learned in space was the power, the incredible long-term power of uh, using on wonder as as a motivation because on wonder unifies us right we share in that in that beauty you know if we're, if we're appreciating beauty a beautiful uh, work of art a beautiful landscape the earth from space that's a unifying effect versus versus a dividing effect i think that's um really important because then you can incorporate change that actually lasts because you can incorporate change that's fear-based but it's not going to last and it's going to lead down a down a dark path uh, that ultimately leads, leads to destruction. So we've I've, I've uh, asked for some questions and we got one. This is from our Rosario. Um, can you share the dialogue process or the conversational protocol you followed for the business team to have the freedom to come up with the fidgetal uh, or any other way to open up an invisible door when cornered by a dragon? <laughs> It's, a, it's an interesting question, a complex one to answer in 30 seconds, but I'll try to do my best. Um, I think the, the number one notion you have to come up with or, or center your activities in is dialogue. It sounds simple, but we're so used on doing monologue that uh, we don't realize the power of actually interacting with, with people. So my first recommendation is 
every question you ask yourself or that you ask of others, make sure that you create an interaction that is actually a open and streaming dialogue. So how does that happen? I'm going to give you an example. And if you recall in the introduction, there was a picture of me standing in front of people with colors on the ground. You might recall that from the yeah. opening video. Um, and that that tool is called a barometer, right? And the problem we had is that we have thousands of people to come to the event, all business people with the intent that are very specific, you know, like a distributor or retailer might have very different needs than an aircraft builder, right? So it's obvious, but you don't know that ahead of time. So how the hell do you segment and make sure that those people interact with the right people, that the dialogue leads to something as opposed to just a chit chat uh, in front of a coffee, right? So how do you do that for thousands of people? Um, so we had to figure out a way to do that. And so we came up with the notion of barometer, which is, which is a workshop that happens at C2, among others. We have more than 100 of them. And so basically, we put 200 people in a room, irrespective of where they, they come from or their background. And we put uh, a question on the board that says, for example, do, are you selling stuff or uh, buying stuff, right? And if you sell stuff, go on the red dot. And if you buy stuff, go on the blue dot. And already you have your group of a couple of hundred people segmented amongst buyers and sellers. Do that a couple of times and with a couple of questions. And you end up with groups of like 5, 10, 15 people of similar interests. Right. So the thing is, is they didn't know each other. They didn't even know they existed, but it took 15 minutes to make sure that their common interest was obvious by simply be physically present. And what do you have to, from that point on, depending on the hour of the day, you offer cappuccinos or Chardonnay. <laughs> Basically, you get those 10 people in a room and say, have a chat for 17 minutes with a moderator, and they have a dialogue about the problem that you have, that the question on the board was presented to you uh, a few minutes ago. And that's how the magic happened. If you are trying to control the output of those 10 people ahead of time, it's a failure waiting to happen. But if you create the environment where the dialogue happens and you let a bit of the magic happen, and when I say magic is the fact that uh, we've been educated by, okay, you do this from, you establish a path from point A to point B. For example, you establish a business plan. All right, you need to have something or else you'll never end up anywhere. But you have to have the flexibility of being non-controlling into what happens next. So if we had kept the same path uh, uh, before pre-COVID, uh, during COVID that C2 was, was on, on board with, you know, our business ca case plan for January is not the business case we're using right now. Had we like steadfast on our direction that we established for ourselves in January, we would be dead by now. So the point is, is that you have to put the environment, create that dialogue and be ready for the alchemy of the people getting together that you nurture that. Right. Okay. And the second step, and I'll stop there, is that there's going to be like uh, little sparks of creativity, little sparks of a good idea. Everyone on the planet from taking a shower or having a glass of wine with people will have little spark of great creativity. But what do you do from that point on, right? If yeah. you have to nurture that spark, so it becomes ultimately a firework. I know it's a metaphor that's been used way, way more. But uh, I can tell you, if you just combine those two things, dialogue and leaving a bit aside your control, and then those little nuggets that emerge, that you nourish them, you're going to change your world like you never believed. It's it's as simple as that. Yeah, I, I mean, leaving aside your control, as, as you put it, I think, um, is really, really critical. Because if, you, if you're coming into the dialogue already having all the answers, then there's no room cre for creativity. creativity. Creativity comes when you don't have the answers, right? And you're searching for the answers. If you're not searching for answers, there's no creativity. <laughs> and that's that is part of the problem is that you know, a lot of our default uh, state is that we already know the answers to everything. And, and um, we're just looking for confirmation that you know that the same answer that I know. 
Uh, and that's just that just maintains the status quo and the status quo is not working. Um, we've got uh, we got a pledge for you there or some for some help from um, Pranima, um, the National U.S. India Chamber of Commerce in here in Denver. Or Denver. I'm not in Denver. I'm in Boulder, but close to close to here uh, is here to help with some with some data. So uh, Namaste Purina. Uh, and um, th there's an analogy here. I had the pleasure uh, with my wife, Marie Pierre, of uh, going to Nepal and thereabouts in India as well uh, in 1999. Um, and uh, everybody is in awe in going to the mountains and so on. But the thing that, um, and I loved the environment, but I also met a lot of Sherpas uh, carrying cases of Coke on their back and for the tourists, of course, right? It was called the Apple Pie Trail uh, because there were so many tourists there. And I, I was obviously disappointed that uh, the tourists brought like the uh, iconic bottle of Coke where none should be had. Yeah. But the point is, is that all the big questions we've been discussing since the start of this uh, pandemic and also since the start of this, this podcast, that Sherpa carrying bottles of Coke still today in those trails up in the Annapurna's um, how do you explain the choices we make and the impact it had those choices have on him or her while carrying bottles of Cokes for those like people from outside of Nepal? And when I try to explain things, that's why I, I focus uh, in a simplistic concept of dialogue since the start of this conversation is that it's really hard to explain a very difficult concept so that everybody will embrace it. And at the end of the day, it's not about who's right or who's wrong, is what happens next. So how, oftentimes uh, uh, I ask myself, if I had that Sherpa in front of me and I had to explain the decision I'm about to make or the solution I'm about to propose, will it make sense for him or her? And would they say, why do I care? And if the answer is, why do I care? Most probably the solution I'm trying to put in place is not the right one to solve the human, human problem. So I welcome the uh, openness for uh, your, um, uh, for your, your, your pledge here. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'll follow up for, with, with you, but just, you gave me a, a good segue mm -hmm. into yeah. explaining that at the end of the day, notwithstanding the greatness of your idea, you have to make sure that people embrace it. Right. And uh, or else uh, you're alone in thinking that your idea is great. So here, so here's a related question. You know, any thoughts about developing? We, we kind of just started to address this, but uh, you know, how can developing countries um, help those countries that are suffering the worst consequences of the pandemic, um, or all the other crises that we're facing as well? I mean, there's a lot of developing countries that are are bearing the brunt of, of global warming and, and, and things like that. So there's a lot of crises that particularly affect uh, developing countries. Um, and so, you know, I'll just throw out something real quick to, to maybe spark the conversation. I think um, one of the main things we can do is to uh, get away from this idea that there's us and then there's them. There is no them. There's only us, right? There's you know, when, when a natural disaster happens or a pandemic or, or, or anything, um, we shouldn't think, oh, those poor people over there. That's happening to us. That's happening to us as a species. That's happening to us as a planetary community. And that changes the, the whole mindset on how to deal with, with problems. Um, and in re that is the reality of the world that we live in. We don't live in 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 the two-dimensional landscape that's that's on the world maps that uh, are hanging in classrooms around the world, you know. And if we have a two-dimensional, if we use a two-dimensional map as a model, then we have a two-dimensional mindset. But we are all interconnected, interdependent, which you know, COVID nineteen should be a perfect example of that, and global warming should be a perfect example of that too. But we, uh, I think, uh, COVID nineteen is a little bit more undeniable, although people still try and deny it. But <laughs> um, Richard, anything to, to say about, you know, how the developed countries can not necessarily help the developing countries, but maybe um, put put things in place for them to be able to, to lift themselves up and to join join in a more prosperous community uh, overall? Yes. Um, uh, let me answer in, in two ways to that question. Um, the first one. Uh, COVID, because of the 
the reality of a viral pandemic is causing us to shut down. We are closing our borders. We are closing our interaction with others. And the solution, whether it's the developing country or anybody else, is about opening borders and sharing even more. Um, I'm sure that uh, the first thing uh, that, that could help a developing country is that people outside of that country are aware of what's happening here or happening there. The analogy I always, uh, I, I always uh, use is that if you're on walking on a sidewalk and you see somebody trip, by human reflex, you will go and help that person to stand up and uh, are you okay and is everything okay because it happened a meter or two meter from you. And yet so many people are tripping all around the world and they're falling down. We know uh, that they are falling down and we basically turn off the TV, go to bed and come back the next morning. And that's not right, right? So uh, this notion of developing country is much broader than just that, is that humanity will work if we work together. The pandemic is causing us for political reasons as, as well as viral uh, reasons to shut down our border when the, what we need to do as humans is exactly the reverse, right? So uh, we'll have to work extra hard. The second point is that we have to, um, you know, uh, I've been working with, uh, as you uh, you have, uh, Ron, working with Mohammed Yunus, and he's been working his entire life at, at solving that very question. So I, I don't have anything to propose that will summarize 50 years of Mohammed Yunus trying to answer that question. But I, what I've learned in working with him is that you have to go at the grassroots level. You know, if you say, oh, I want to solve world poverty, Okay, that's a novel cause, and you have the SDGs and all the initiatives that come with it, and I applaud him. But at the end of the day, that person in uh, Madagascar that is wondering how to feed uh, their children the next day, that's the, that's the real root cause that you have to try to alleviate. And why am I saying this is I, I worked a couple of years back with a students that had the same reflection on um, uh, from Germany uh, on sub-Sahara communities, okay? And they were saying, those, those German students, university students, they said, well, you know, to eliminate poverty, yeah, we can have money and create markets and so on, but the number one problem that those villages sub-Sahara had, at least some countries, were proteins. I said, what? Proteins? What, what is this, right? So they, they say, well, they can't feed themselves, so they cannot work, and then they cannot uh, have money and so on, right? So their solution was to um, to generate like gigantic aquariums costing 500 bucks to all sub-Sahara de de deserts so that they can harvest fish in the desert. Super crazy idea. Only students with uh, open mind uh, could think of that. And you know what? It worked. The, the, the villages, with a very little investment, were able to harvest fish to more than feed the villages, but also sell it to other villages. So you actually created an economy. So I'm not saying that's the solution for everything. That's not my goal here. But you see how uh, an initiative, by combining a good idea from Germans and bold enough people in the, in the sub-Sahara desert in some countries that says, yeah, we're going to try this as bold enough as creating spawning fish in the middle of a desert, and it actually worked. So uh, these are the creativity aspect of how we're going to solve this. And it's not a government. Um, uh, all government in the world, uh, like with the exception of a few, ultimately they want what's best for their people. At, at least that's what they are saying, and most of them are kind of carrying with that forward. But it's not... Uh, millions of people cannot rely on a single person to or a group of people to solve everything and that notion of control that uh, i was talking about earlier mm -hmm. clearly applies here usually yeah. we look at upstairs and say oh my boss told me to do that right well my government is not giving me this or it's true i mean it has an impact but it's not the entirety of the solution what are you going to do about it? And uh, developing world or not, 
I think the, the rule is the same, to be quite frank, because uh, we we are one planet. Yeah. And so, we are faced with one crisis here. So it's yeah. the same. So there, there's nothing. There's nothing wrong, and it's 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 perfectly fine for country, individual nations, to to act in what's in accordance to their best national interest. That's what governments are elected to do. Uh, that's what leaders are elected to do. But you have to pursue those national interests in the context of the overarching planetary community that we that we're a part of. And so I'm just gonna uh, I'm gonna pop up a. a, a a comment that I think uh, really relates to that. But before I do, I want to just go back to something that you said. You talked about the, that human nature is if you see somebody trip on a on a street, you're gonna you're gonna go to help, right? That's that's our natural inclination. And if you really boil that down, though, that's not any more altruistic than pulling your hand back from a hot stove, right? Once you remove the false sense of separation, once you realize that we're all part of this of this community, that we really are a superorganism called humanity that's that's part of a larger superorganism super called earth then you know things become clear and so this uh this comment from a uh, uh, court k1 uh the developed nations of the world in recent years seem to be growing more nationalistic self-interested and less cooperative with each other and i think that that is probably even worse than it than it than it sounds because you know we talked about the last question was about the developing world, right? And what we can do to help the developing world. And there's there's million, there's over 20 million organizations around the world that are working to improve life uh, on earth, primarily in developing countries. But there's, you know, all countries need, need some type of help. But what what's clear when you zoom out to the big, to the bigger picture is that all of these organizations and all these people are basically sticking their fingers in, in the holes in the dam, right? Because, What's really driving it all is the global corruption that is is put systematic uh, processes in place to keep the developed country developing countries in poverty, to keep developed countries rich, uh, and exploiting the, the the rest of the of the world for for that. And and all of the countries are doing that to to some extent or another. So the the flow of you know we talk about billions of dollars flowing in from you know, Western nations and, and other nations around the world uh, to developing countries. But that is dwarfed by the, the, the funds that are coming out of developing countries uh, through exploitation. And so uh, I, I think we need, again, we need a dolly zoom, right? Dolly zoom applies uh, not just spatially, uh, but it also applies temporally. So we can't just look at the short term uh, effects. We need to look at the short-term effects um, to any solution, but we also need to look at the long-term effects. We can't just look at going into one village and and um, you know solving whatever problem that one village might have. We need to do that, but we also need to look at the the overarching systemic things that are causing that problem in the first place. Uh, and we need to so we need to dolly zoom. We need to look at the big picture and the small picture together. We need to look at the short-term and the long-term picture together. And I think. Uh, I think a lot of things become clear when you look at it from that perspective, from that dolly zoomed per perspective. I think there, there's a question from Michael there that says, how do you get out of the, that box thinking and how do you get going, right? And, and it, it's a good segue from uh, your, your position, uh, Ron, just now. I, yeah. I remember, if I have to summarize it, uh, I'd say, you know, you're not a government, or at least uh, personally, I, I never thought I could be a prime minister of Canada. So kind of, okay, that's out of the way. So, and, and being an elected official is one of the most powerful thing you can have in influencing society. Because think of it, a stroke of a pen in five minutes can change the direction that society takes. And we have a few examples from the US and uh, others that it, it, it might create an inflection point in uh, multiple ways, you know, good or bad. So no, no businesses has this power, but unless you're elected, that's kind of a problem. And hopefully you're, you're kind of in a, in a democracy. The, the flip side, if just you're, you're going with the citizenship and so we are all are, our tool is voting. So links back to the government. And the second tool we have is go to the streets and uh, share our point of view with as and influence people, which is also good. But uh, and short of that, you become a revolutionary, and uh, so that's the Che Guevara type of scenario, and which is like far and few between. So what's left? You know what? Starting a business. 
if you see a problem, whether it's in a social problem, um, uh, a, a environmental problem or so on, try to wrap a business around it. Don't necessarily start it, but I hope you would. But my point is that if you have to think as to, okay, here's the problem and I'm going to, I have to start a business to alleviate that problem. It will bias your point of view of, okay, I need a team, I need a plan, I need resources, I need money, I need all this. And it's going to structure your mindset on how to solve that problem. Not the profit of, from it, but just the structure of it. A corporation was invented for that. It was not invented to like uh, for the, the king or someone. It was for how a group of people can work together in a profitable way, but it wasn't meant from a, an economic standpoint. It was meant to de-risk how you move forward. Corporations stemmed from like the, the transatlantic ships that were like sailing from Europe to North America. It was simply too hard for a single individual to, to have a ship sail and too risky from France or Spain or Portugal to go to the new world. So what did they do? They created corporation to spread the risk and make sure that if the ship gets to, to, uh, to, 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 its, uh, to its destination, everybody reaps the benefit of it. Well, that's where we are right now. Right. We are in a crisis. What's your response to that crisis? Try to wrap a business around it. And if you're successful, everyone that's part of that business and society around it will have the benefit of it. That's a, that's a corporate. Yeah. So, so, you know, I've talked about that. I think we're moving into a, a new human epoch. And one of the things that's going to be redefined in this new human epoch is what it means to be a business, what it means to be a corporation. Because right now, the vast majority of the corporations in the world have the uh, single most uh, important uh, objective is to maximize shareholder value. That is how they're judged. Uh, that's how all the, 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 the executives of those companies are legally bound to do that through in the U.S. anyway, through uh, you know, Supreme Court judgments. Um, but there are, you know, emerging B Corps. There's, as, as we talked about, Muhammad Yunus's social business. And for anybody that doesn't know, Muhammad Yunus is a Nobel Peace Prize winner. He um, was awarded that for uh, inventing uh, microfinance, which, which has lifted millions and millions of people out of destitute poverty around the world. And then uh, he started uh, something called social business, where there is no return to the investors other than their initial return. And so um, what they're competing for is not so much, um, uh, you know, venture capital type of invest investment, but philanthropic uh, investment. So instead of donating $1,000 to a charity, you would invest $1,000 uh, in this business that's doing the same thing as the charity is doing, uh, but that $1,000 has multiple lives. So uh, if the business is successful, which, which is the goal of a business, is, is to be self-sufficient, which means it doesn't need to keep bringing more money in, but if the business is, is successful, then that the, that person can leave the thousand dollars in there, continuing to do good, or they can pull it out and, in, and invest in, in something else. So I think that's that's really important. But you know, finding finding a problem and creating a business around it is is the right way to go. I think as long as that business is structured in a way that doesn't lead to more exploitation, um, you know, more extraction of, of resources that we can't extract, you know, uh, more social problems because of the way uh, that their supply chains work or their labor policies or, or anything else. And so um, that I think, you know, right now businesses are for the most part seen as self-serving uh, entities, independent self-serving entities uh, operating in a, in a self-serving vacuum. But I think in this new human epoch, what we'll find is that businesses are seen and operate as interdependent nodes in a fabric of prosperity, where they're first and foremost there to serve the needs of civilization and society. And uh, they're working in concert with, with all the other ones in a positive, restorative way, not an exploitive uh, and, and unfair fair and uh, imbalanced way. And so I think uh, uh, what you bring up, Richard, is, is really uh, in line with that. And, and I think there's a, sorry, maybe I'm too optimistic, but a bright future for that. Because, yeah, bottom line maximization is how we viewed the world from a business standpoint. But it depends on who's driving the show. You know, that team here, 
we saw it even with large U.S. corporation when the the management of that corporation went one way, and the employee said, "Hey, hey, no, no, that's not uh, coherent with our value or what we want to do as a group of individual." Well, I can tell you that the management really listened hard because when people like jump ship, uh, it influences the outcome of that profit maximization. So, not to say that this is like uh, a done deal or anything of the sort, but um, I never believed in capitalism. Uh, having studied, though, in China, I don't believe in communism either. But the notion of being responsible in how we capitalize in what we've got, that I believe in. So um, I, I, I was brought up with the iron, um, uh, iron curtain up between, you know, like uh, the USSR and the rest of the planet. And we went with this war about uh, democracies and communism and all those things. And today in the 21st century, a bit accelerated because of uh, this COVID crisis, we, we see, we feel there's kind of a new model that needs to emerge. It's not called democracy, not to say that it's not, it's imperfect, but it's not perfect either. But there's a, a something that is emerging. And I think it's going to take at least a, another decade to really figure out what is the wording, and I'll leave the anthropologist to, to figure out what is that wording. Um, but we know that uh, the, the US model, if I may think, which was kind of a beacon post uh, Cold War, has run its term. And the US is reinventing itself and the world is changing in figuring out what's the next beacon, what's the next bench, benchmark. And to, to be quite frank, I, I interact, uh, I have the pleasure of interacting a lot with uh, youth. Uh, and when I say youth, in, you know, you see my gray hair, I'm more like there's, there's uh, less up ahead of me than behind me. Um, but anyone that is not at that stage are responsible to construct what's next. And when I speak to them and I really listen to them, uh, I'm very hopeful of what's coming next because they don't get bogged down by structures that don't work anymore. Some some of uh, the people here listening uh, talked about how how you're we're educated. Well, school is a an old model, but do you dump school because it's an old model? No, you'll have to adapt it. So you listen and go through your schooling, but. Keep in mind the creative and revolutionary ideas that you had prior to entering school, and that's your life's calling. So uh, I, some of the notion I've shared with you today, I'm 55 years old. I know I had when I was 16, and there were big questions, and I haven't changed ever since. But what changed is that I, I, I always went back to those open-minded idea I had as I was much younger. And that's what helped me in moving forward and figuring out a path that I can share with others because I believed that right here in what that path was. Not because books were telling me, because it felt just right. Right. If I if I may, uh, maybe for everyone, and that sounds maybe tacky, but at one point um, uh, I had to figure out you know, if you propel the economy and society forward, what's your metric? You know, I, I, at the start of this uh, podcast, I, I called about numbers and so on. So, and I hate when I do that because I do it because everybody understands $700 million worth of deal is a big number. And everybody can understand, okay, that's a big impact and that's uh, better than my past weekend, right? No, I don't know that many people who did that in 72 hours. But on the flip side is that, is that the right metric to be measuring the economy and society forward? And my answer is absolutely not. I'm using that metric because everybody understands the magnitude of what it means, but my metric is happiness. So I, and this is not the corny part. It's about at the end of the day, what makes you feel good? What makes your neighbor feel good? And what is your co-human uh, partner living on this planet what is the number one thing after being alive so health healthy it's being happy it's not the size of your car it's about the fact that you can interact and having the pleasure like today i'm actually uh 
like ecstatic of seeing people from all around the world just looking at the chat. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be pumped for the next week just remembering, listening the names and seeing the names and the comments I see on the chat room. That's happiness, right? Yeah. And if that was a benchmark that we try to measure ourselves and if the journalist or uh, the government or even our our fellow human beings didn't think it was that tacky to to label it that way, um, I, I think this would be the benchmark that we yep. establish how the world should work, right? right. Are we happy or not? And yep. that will mean very different things to very different people. But who cares if it's different? The end of the day is if we're all happy, um, it the, the world literally will be a better place. Yeah, and it's I mean it's hard to be to be truly happy when you know two billion people don't have access to clean water or or you know are going to bed hungry every night. Is um, you know most people you know can't be truly happy. And I think you know you talked about the paths that we want to go down, and I, I and we're coming up on on the end, uh, end of the hour, but you know we, we are really at at a fork in the road right now. And we can go down the the fear-based path that uh, you know that we're, we're, we continue down this path of hypernationalism of, of us versus them of you know all of the, all of the old way of doing things that, that we've done before, or we can go down a new path, right? That's that's a path based on on wonder. That's based on our implicit wholeness. That's based on us being a, a planetary community. Um, that leads to happiness. I mean, it leads to us being able to be harmonious with each other, with our planet, with all the other species that we share this planet with. And the choice is really, really clear. Uh, but I think there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of misinformation going around. Um, like I said, fear is a very, very powerful tool uh, to affect short-term uh, motivation, short-term change. Um but I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic that, you know, a lot of the, the hypernationalism, the us versus them that we're seeing, the devices that, that we're seeing are the death throes of the old human epoch. And uh, it's it's uh, we're going to leave that behind and uh, and, and enter it and go down. I think we are going to go down the right path um, because we have to. <laughs> the alternative the alternative is uh, is not so good. Uh, but, Richard, do you have any any closing comments that you, you want to bring out before we uh, say goodbye to everybody? Um, I, I sound like I, I'm going to repeat myself, but like you, sometimes I see the world in a very, as a dark place, right? And uh, before the sunrise, it's uh, it's dark, right? right? But the sun always rises, uh, whether we like it or not. And at the end of the day, some it, it's not a zero-sum game where losers and uh, winners and so on. Uh, I mean, some people view the world that way and you have to fight this it's not something that's going to go away and i i'm not saying it doesn't exist but the end game is basically not what what's going to happen to you tomorrow it's what's going to happen to the legacy you're building so I, a friend of mine surprisingly told me that he had less than seven thousand days to live and he was worried and he was looking at how many days with an app on his iphone every morning as to how many days between now and expected moment of death. You kind of say, you have it all, all wrong, man. First, yeah. uh, who, who, who wants to know where they're going to die? But it's the wrong objective. We're all for infinite life. That is what you need to do. And that is going to be done by you interacting with others. And that dialogue is your solution to dark days uh, because they are going to come. And um, uh, so if you're wondering what's next, share what you think what is next with others and uh, you'll see something will emerge. There is a window that's going to be built even though there's dragon breathing down your neck. Yeah. So to get together, we can build a future that we would all want to be a part of. And and Richard, you're doing just that. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on this. Thank you for all the, the insight and wisdom that you've shared. Thank you uh, for what you're doing with the Global Data Pledge and f- with C2 and, and everything else. And uh, I encourage everybody to, to look up. Is there any um, uh, websites that you can share? We, we'll, we'll put them in the, in, the, in the show notes and everything else. But uh, um, anything you want to share as far as how people can get a, a hold of you or, 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 or uh, contribute to what you're doing? 
For sure, the, the website is uh, very simple, c2.biz, B-I-Z. And uh, my email address is rstpierre at c2.biz. So like, I'd love to hear from you, uh, whether you want like to share a few uh, thoughts or even work together anytime, please uh, do so. Dialogue is one of the keys uh, into our future. Thank you so much, Richard. And thank you to everybody who tuned in. Thanks for the comments uh, and the questions. And uh, please help us get the word out about this podcast if you enjoyed it. Um, we've got some really, really tremendous guests com coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, and uh, we're really we're really looking forward to making something uh, really impactful uh, through the podcast. So thanks, everybody. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for joining us during this conversation from the Orbital Perspective. And thank you for being a part of an emerging unity on our planet. We are strongest when we are aligned around the truth of our underlying unity. Together, we are unstoppable and can build a positive, restorative future, a future that we would all want to be a part of. Please subscribe to the Orbital Perspective podcast and follow us on social media. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you will do to help make life on our planet as beautiful as it looks from space. <laughs>